You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Elahe Izadi, co-host of the podcast Post Reports and a reporter covering media at The Post. Today, we have two segments on the future of journalism and the state of journalism today. Later, I'll be joined by Nancy Gibbs, the director of the Shorenstein Center Center at Harvard University and former editor-in-chief of Time. But first, we'll hear from Kim Yoshi- Kimi Yoshino. Sorry, Kimi. Kimi Yoshino, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Banner. Kimi, thank you and welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our audience. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. So Kimmy, let's jump in. The Baltimore Banner is a relatively new online news site, started publishing this last summer. You were recruited to be its editor-in-chief. You were formerly a top editor at the Los Angeles Times. So tell us, what made you want to move across the country to run this unknown brand new venture? What was the promise that was so appealing to you? I, I really wasn't actually expecting to want to move to Baltimore and to, you know, uproot my family and start over, but it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I just don't think opportunities come along very often where you're basically told you can build everything from the ground up. You can hire everyone, every single person. You can uh, put together all of the policies. You can build the culture that you want. And I was really excited about it. And I also thought this was really an opportunity to try to make a difference, try to really think about local news and how we could potentially replicate this model in other markets. Yeah, Kimmy, I want to hear more about the model, but first the banner's attention clearly on Baltimore. And is it the city of Baltimore or Baltimore County more broadly? Just so we're clear about when we say Baltimore, what we're talking about. Yeah, we we certainly started with a core of reporters in the city, but we are definitely trying to cover Baltimore County and the surrounding region. We have reporters in the State House in Annapolis, and we are launching sports. We're moving into some other counties in Maryland later this year and early next. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit more about the particular areas that the banner is focusing on? You mentioned a few already, or maybe you know started publishing this last summer. What areas you're finding most reader engagement and interest in so far? Well, you know, when I moved to Baltimore, I knew that there was going to be no shortage of news. I, I knew it was a great news town, and it certainly has not disappointed. I will just take yesterday as an example. We had uh, a major development in a in a crime story that many people have been watching involving um, a teen uh, squeegee worker who uh, shot and killed a motorist who had been carrying a baseball bat, crossed many lanes of traffic to uh, to charge at the squeegee workers only to turn around and then later be shot. Um, there was a decision yesterday to try him as an adult. That was a big story. The state attorney general is releasing a several hundred page investigation into clergy abuse um, in the Catholic Church. It was just kind of a crazy day yesterday, and it feels like almost every day has been like that here. 
Um, but we've also been very committed to community coverage, trying to uh, write about neighborhoods and communities that have traditionally been underserved. Mm -hmm. This kind of segues into this. I, I know a number of the journalists that you have hired came from the Baltimore Sun. And maybe we could just step back for a moment and look at how the Baltimore banner came to be. It happened to, it came into existence after businessman Stuart Bainham. He originally tried to buy the Baltimore Sun when it became clear this hedge fund, Alden Global Capital, was making a move to, to purchase the Baltimore Sun's uh, parent company, um, which they eventually did, Tribune Publishing. And Mr. Bainham was unsuccessful in being able to purchase the Sun and instead started this this venture. And you've recruited a number of Sun journalists um, who were excellent reporters um, and have been covering Baltimore for a while. Do you think that the city of Baltimore is big enough to sustain both the Baltimore Sun and the banner? Or are you thinking about, you know, how the banner does things differently and, and thinking of it in that way? Yeah, um, it's true. We have hired a number of amazing journalists from the Baltimore Sun. We have hired a number of amazing journalists from all over the country, um, though many of them did have ties to Maryland or Baltimore and wanted to come back. So we feel like we've got a great mix of both people who really know the city and community and people who are looking at it with fresh eyes. Um, we do think a lot about how are we going to do things differently. And I'm, I'm actually surprised on a daily basis how little overlap there often is between our coverage and the Sun's coverage. And I think it's just a, a, a signal of how much there is to report here. Um, I guess in answer to your question, though, we, we do think that um, I mean, I think that there's plenty of news to go around. Um, mm -hmm. They have uh, they have so far answered um, us with uh, competition. Um, we have seen I, I, I mean, I think I've seen um, some really strong reporting coming from the sun um, and they have backfilled some of the positions um, where we hired some of their staff. Mm -hmm. I'm curious whether you think the business model of the Baltimore banner is, you know, indicative or what's leading to maybe different types of coverage. Like you mentioned, you're, you are surprised to notice that your coverage might be different than what the sun is doing. And first, can you just tell us a little bit about the business model that's supporting the banners journalism? How, how much of it is based on one, one person investing a lot of money and, and just long-term what's the vision? Yes. Well, certainly uh, Stuart did invest a lot of seed money up front. His, th his theory was that he wanted to invest a lot at the beginning and he wanted us to start big. So as a result, our newsroom right now is more than 50 journalists. We are hoping to be at 60, maybe even 70 by early next year. Um, and we thought that we would come out big and really cover this region the way that we thought it deserved to be covered. Our model is subscription-based and philanthropy-based. So we are, uh, we do have a paywall. We are selling subscriptions and 
I'm happy to report that uh, so far we really believe that we're on track uh, the way we were we were expecting to be this year. I've I've been pleased with the reaction um, from re readers and residents uh, in Baltimore and throughout Maryland. And just a note to our viewers at home, I think we're having a little bit of a sync issue with our connection here um, that we're working on, but I want to continue the conversation here. Um, you know, you mentioned a paywall. I'm curious about, um, and apologies if you were already talking about this, I was trying to, to catch you in the moment there. Um, what do you make of this this concept that you know is prevalent in a lot of communities that paywalls and having subscription based um, can shut some people out from news coverage? Um, and what what is the most sort of wide ranging approach so that everyone can have access to good, reliable, fact based journalism? Absolutely, we are we are concerned about this. It's something that we think a lot about. Uh, we are working on getting access to the banner at middle schools and high schools in public libraries. We're working on uh, partnerships with community organizations and neighborhood organizations where we can provide access. Uh, we dropped our paywall for five days during the election so that people could read our voter guide, read our political coverage, and get informed uh, before they voted. Um, and we are, we, you know, we are also forming partnerships. Um, we have a partnership with our our local NPR affiliate, where uh, our reporters often are on air talking about our stories, and we go on our CBS television station every weekday around 9.30 with one of our stories as other ways to get our stories out there. Um, we are also working on providing access to our content for free um, to other news organizations throughout the state. Kimmy, I'm curious with your experience of getting the banner up and running and, and this model that is different than the model you came from at the LA Times. Do you feel like this is a replicable model for other cities and communities across the country? Does it require, you know, having someone who is very wealthy and is very interested in preserving local journalism and extending it to to basically financially back a huge investment? You know, I'm not going to lie. I think this is hard work. Uh, I think, as you can see, there are nonprofit journalism organizations cropping up all over the country who are trying to do the exact same thing that we're doing. And I think the fact that this is happening is really evidence that it's needed, number one, and that people want it. Uh, I will say that you know, we are we are pleased with the number of people that are reading our content right now. And we feel like our stories and our coverage are already making a difference They're le It's leading to proposed new legislation. It's leading to changes in agencies that are having trouble. Um, we're we're feeling good. Kimmy, I'm also curious what you make of how local journalism has functioned in the past. You know, sometimes there's this discourse around we need to save local journalism, but has local journalism, the way it's been practiced, always served communities? And curious, as you're building a new th new thing here, the ways in which you want to improve and do things differently, not just, you know, hire more people to do more journalism, but think about it differently or present it differently. 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we did was we asked all of our reporters to draft a mission statement. What are they doing? What is the purpose of what they're doing? Who are they doing it for? And we really want them thinking about this all the time. We want that guiding the stories that they're choosing to do. Um, We are also constantly looking for different ways to tell stories. So I will just give you an example from yesterday. We published a story from our food reporter. She went to 10 different grocery stores and priced probably a dozen common, you know, grocery list items. And we we comparison shopped um, as a service to our readers to to tell them, you know, where groceries cost the least. Um, We put it all on a chart. We thought this was important um, right now because of inflation. Uh, But we took it a step further and we assigned a second reporter to go to a food desert and um, figure out where she could shop to find the same items on the list. And what she found is that the groceries were more expensive and that many of the people who live in the neighborhood uh, feel like they have to go much further when they want to find fresh produce uh, or meat. And we did all of that on a video as well. We put it on TikTok, we put it on Instagram. And in addition to the story, we're trying to think about how can we reach readers where where they are, which is not always on our site. Yeah, yeah. Um, And also just that example is a really great one to demonstrate the types of stories that only really local journalists can do, you know, like a big national news outlet can do a story about you know, inflation and affecting affecting food prices and grocery prices, but to live in Baltimore and know, oh, this is where, how much it costs in this part of the city or at this store. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a really good example of that. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about the broader state of local journalism and how many journalists around the country are still doing this kind of work. There was this recent study from Northwestern University that found over 360 newspapers in the United States have gone out of business since just before the start of the pandemic. So that averages about two closures a week. Um, The good news, if there's any, is that the pandemic didn't make the trend worse, but it's still not a great trend. And I'm curious, you know, like we're talking about, okay, here's the story about grocery food, food prices. Also, what does this mean about the state and future of democracy? Can a system of governance that is democratic survive without a robust, free and local uh, local news? I mean, I think that's the big debate right now. And I think that's why so many people are trying to do what we're doing at the banner. I mean, one of the things that's so exciting is that a lot of the journalists that we have hired had options. They they could have stayed at the Sun. They could have stayed where they were. They're talented. They could get jobs in many different places. They have dis- they have chosen to come work for us, and they are single-mindedly focus on this mission of of serving our readers and our community. And it's refreshing to be working at a place where everybody feels a hundred percent committed to our mission and to serving our readers. It's it, it's unusual in my experience. Hmm. I know often when we 
when people say the media, their mind might think national media, which can be quite polarized, people in echo chambers. Um, but working in local news, what is your experience there? Is it is it hard to build trust with a loyal audience without appealing to sort of partisanship or polarization? Um, is local news distinct and different in that regard? Uh, I would say no. Uh, there's still polarization, you know, in our community. Um, I think there's still distrust of media um, in, you know, in the city. I mean, remember, um, this community, um, like many others, has been served by legacy media uh, that that undercovered or misrepresented a number of things. And I'm not going to say for a second, that we have been perfect in that. We have made some mistakes too, uh, but we are working really hard to build trust. We're trying to do that through sourcing, through the stories that we tell, and through outreach in the community. We are we are out there all the time, walking through these neighborhoods, speaking at community groups, holding community events. We are we are trying to be present and slowly build trust. Kimmy, we, we only have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you a question about what the role local government or just governments in general, federal government, uh, might have to play in sustaining local newsrooms and local journalism. You know, if we think outside of private backing or philanthropy, does the government play a role in this? And if so, what should it look like? Well, um, as... as um, as you know, I um, came here from California. I had been working at the Los Angeles Times for many years, and I, I was really pleasantly surprised to read news out of California that the the state was um, uh, go going to be funding, I don't remember the exact amount, but millions and millions of dollars um, in local journalism uh, in, uh, with the help of UC Berkeley. Um, that to me is a, a positive sign of potential partnerships for, for building um, what we're trying to do here. I mean, there's a potential danger, obviously, because we still have to report on the state government. We still have to report on lawmakers who potentially um, would be lobbying for this funding. But I think we should be looking at any possible avenue of funding there is for media. Well, Kimmy, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. We've run out of time. Thank you again. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. Misinformation runs rampant today, so truthful, well-produced journalism has never been more critical. But the future of journalism in the digital age requires news organizations and journalists to, to reimagine how they report and distribute the news. Joining me now for a discussion about the future of news is Jim Brady, Vice President of Journalism at Knight Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Jim, those of us in the news business um, know about the Knight Foundation, um, Knight Raider newspapers, and of course, the legacy of John S. and James L. Knight. I think they were really quintessential news innovators with a real commitment to, to informing and engaging the public. Now, for our viewers, though, who may not be as familiar with all that, why don't you tell us about what you do? 
So the Knight Foundation is one of the larger funders of journalism in the country, philanthropic funders of journalism in the country. And we operate largely in the 26 cities where the Knight brothers had uh, Knight Raider newspapers, hence the name Knight, of course. And journalism funds in those cities, but journalism also is a national program in that we we try to look for you know ways we can help the entire journalism ecosystem uh, from coast to coast. And so we put a lot of uh, money into not just starting news organizations, but frankly, focusing more on the sustainability of news organizations. How do we build a new economic model that allows you know sites to thrive and new sites to join the fray um, in a way that's been impossible for the last 20 years while the business has been under kind of constant attack from technological changes, new players in the field, et cetera. So while people hear that we fund journalism and a lot of people automatically think that means we fund newsrooms. We actually are trying to fund the infrastructure to support newsrooms, which is a thorny problem. So you basically invest in building a sustainable future for independent local journalism. Now, that is no small task in these days and times with so many news agencies closing at an historic rate. What are you seeing uh, around the country and how concerned are you about it? Obviously a concern, but I think you're seeing some things that are optimistic right now is that for a long time in the digital space, every startup that, you know, decided it was going to go out there and publish news kind of had to figure out most of its infrastructure, you know, on its own. And I think you're starting to see a lot of organizations pop up now that help lots of organizations figure out whether it's technology, business model, um, a service, a tool. So things like the American Journalism Project, which we put 20 million into a few years ago, News Revenue Hub, local independent online news publishers. These organizations are serving dozens and in many cases, hundreds of news organizations who have similar needs and frankly don't need to try to figure this out on their own because a lot of us have, have spent part of our careers trying to figure this out for them and have the lumps to show for it. So I think you're starting to see a lot more collaboration, a lot more of a sense that we're in this together and we need to work together to figure out the model. And I think both the attitudes of people in the field and the services available to them are much better now than they were five, even five years ago. Jim, I know combined, you and I have spent probably more than a lifetime in the news business. And we've both heard before, the sky is falling. Journalism will never be the same again. What would you say is different this time? I just I think there's a I think there's a, a been an attitude shift. I think there have been a lot of new players in the space who are doing good work. I frankly think that there's also been a rethinking of what journalism should be in the local community. I think one of my well, we all love the 30 percent margin era of newspapers where you could keep hiring more and more people. I would argue a lot of newspapers did a lousy job of really communicating with their audience and, and really getting to know their audience. It was very much a arm's length relationship between your average newspaper reporter and the and the community they purported to serve. Now I think you see a lot of great sites popping up out there that get that community engagement has to be at the center of what they do because frankly, the revenue of the future is more likely to come from the reader than it is to come from the advertiser. And so the only way to be successful is to engage with that audience. So I think you're just seeing a, a, a paradigm shift in how people engage with their audience. And I think that's gonna open up revenue doors that frankly we haven't really explored in quite a long time. I mean, newspapers did cost something, but the price on the front of the newspaper was really just the price to open the box. The money was made on advertising and, and, and is on television as well. I think that's starting to change and that's a good thing. What about people who say they don't trust anything they read or see in the news, uh, that it's just you know an industry out to make money like everyone else? What do you say to that? 
Uh, we've done a lousy job telling our own story because the truth is, like, of course, these are businesses, but they've also been under great peril for the last 20 years. And many of them have gone out of business because they haven't been able to figure this model out yet. I do think, though, that we are partially to blame for that. I think the media has done a poor job of communicating the problems that it has faced. And there was a Gallup survey you know, four or five years ago that said 74 percent of people didn't recognize that local news was in trouble. In fact, they said they thought local news was thriving. Meanwhile, those of us who were working in it were wondering what they were smoking. But the bottom line is we weren't being that transparent about our business problems and in some cases still are not. So I, I do think part of the trust problem is that we haven't always leveled with our own audience about our own economic condition. I also think there's just a battle uh, from a trust perspective, a battle for what the soul of journalism is that almost by definition is going to chip away at trust. There's a large chunk of people who believe that they're kind of objective, fact-based journalism that, that you and I were raised on is no longer the right way forward. And so those folks are not going to trust that style of journalism where the folks who really do believe in a more objective style are never going to really feel comfortable with strongly opinionated kind of mission-driven journalism. So I think there's just some noise in the number that's almost inevitable until or if this kind of debate over the future of journalism is resolved. We also, I think, have to get better at and understanding what our unique role is and, and maybe not be as um, opinionated, not be as active on things like Twitter that are not actually all that helpful in building trust in journalism because it is a medium that is almost, uh, almost built to get you to react in ways that are emotional and short-sighted. Short so, you know, I think there's a lot of work for us to do, but I think it also has to start with us being more transparent than we've been about what we're going through. Excellent points. Jim Brady, Vice President of Journalism at Knight Foundation. Thank you so much. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. For those of you just joining us, this is Washington Post Live. I'm Elahe Izadi, co-host of the Post Reports podcast and a reporter covering media at The Post. I am now pleased to be joined by Nancy Gibbs, director of the Shorenstein Center at Harvard and former editor-in-chief of Time. Nancy, welcome. Hi, Lahi. Nice to be with you. Likewise. And remember, to our audience, we always want to hear from you. You can share your thoughts and questions for guests on Washington Post Live by tweeting at Post Live. So, Nancy, I want to pick up where we left off with Kimi Yoshino. We discussed the rate at which newspapers are closing in this country. Um, it's pretty rapid. But the pressures that face local news are not unique to local news. They kind of are across the media landscape and the media industry. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about some of the forces and conditions that got us to this point where we, where we are seeing so many closures of newspapers around the country? Yeah, it really is dramatic. And you cited with Kimmy um, Penny Abernathy's research at Northwestern. You know, she has found that the number of people working for in the newspaper industry has dropped by 70 percent since 2005. And you can say, well, there's much more to media than just newspapers, except newspapers have a way of driving the coverage everywhere else. And local newspapers particularly tend to be the most focused on the most critical information that people living in a community need. And many um, regional and national news organizations kind of depend on local news as their frontline troops. And so when newspapers are unhealthy, it's like that virus um, infects the entire 
information ecology. Some of this is driven by economic disruption, some of it obviously by technological change, by the fact that people's attention uh, now is being competed for by so many more players. At any given minute, yeah, you can be reading the news, you can be on TikTok, you can be playing Fortnite, you can be reading your kid's report card. That kind of um, competition for attention is makes it incredibly difficult for news organizations to figure out how they can capture and engage and hold on to an audience, um, both to their advertisers, which is a revenue stream, as you noted, that is declining, and to their to their readers and viewers. Yeah, and so much of that business model has been dependent upon subscribers, paying subscribers, and then also ad revenue, which print ad revenue has been dropping off a cliff ever since about 2005, 2006 when it peaked. And digital advertising, it hasn't really made up the shortfall. So I'm just wondering, you know, these local news outlets, they might be able to attract a large audience, but they might struggle to convert that into revenue. We discussed earlier the nonprofit model. Do you think that's a solution? The solution? Is it part of a puzzle? Can you kind of unpack here what's being done around the country? So there's a huge amount of experimentation going on, which is the good news. And some of it is profit-driven and entrepreneurial. Some of it is uh, philanthropically driven. Some of it, as you noted, is um, a uh, maybe better late than never recognition at the local community level and at the national level that a lot of news organizations are struggling and are going to need support, whether it's government support in the form of payroll tax credits, which has been proposed, or some kind of licensing fee from the platforms that have really captured so much of the advertising revenue that used to go to news organizations. Just to take one example, um, last year, Amazon alone will make more money from advertising than every single newspaper in the world put together. So it isn't just the digital advertising, it's not replacing, replacing print advertising, it is the digital advertising disproportionately goes to the very few big players of Meta and Google and Amazon, and everyone else is left to divide whatever is left. So I don't think there's likely to be any one solution to the problem, but even some of the most uh, creative and promising digital startups are often starting in cities and in more populated areas where uh, there's an audience and possible demand for the product. That still leaves us with, I think is a maybe an under-discussed piece of the problem, which is where the news deserts are. Now about half of the counties in the United States only have one newspaper. Usually it's a weekly. So if you live in a county like where I live, there are 28 newspapers in my county. There's no problem finding out who's running for the school board or who's, you know, what's going to be debated in any kind of local referendum. But if you live in some of the more rural areas, there may be no no local reliable local news source at all. And of course, the way our political system works, those are often the very same areas that carry disproportionate political weight. When you think about uh, how the Senate is structured, how the Electoral College is structured, a voter, a Senate voter in South Dakota is 44 times more powerful than a Senate voter in California. And yet it's often exactly those voters 
who have the least access to you know reliable in-depth coverage of the issues in their communities so that the political problem and the economic problem and the technological problem all converge when we're talking about local news and to the extent that local news really sort of functions as democracy's immune system this is critically important not just for people who sort of care about journalism but for people who care about the very you know strength of our civic fabric yeah and you mentioned that term news desert which is uh, a term that was developed uh, to sort of describe communities where there is no real reliable source of uh, information of news but then there's also places where yes there's a newspaper even a weekly newspaper as you mentioned but they have a fraction of the staff that they once had they're often referred to as ghost newspapers um, and so I I'm wondering if this is even a little bit of a mirage that the problem is a lot worse than than we might capture and, you know, in my conversations with people on, on the ground, something they've noted is, oh, before we used to get our newspapers delivered and now they come through the mail so that the news in it is so outdated, it's not actually up to date. Um, so I'm wondering if you're also noticing this nationwide as you're looking at the bigger picture. Well, and this is, of course, the, the cost of printing and distributing a newspaper has gone up enormously. So, of course, there has been an effort to, to migrate um, readers behavior more towards digital products but he, but that even creates another problem which is right. that now in all 50 states there are what look like local news sites if you were to you know open them up for for all intents and purposes they look exactly like you know some you know the the you know Lincoln County Sacramento Regional Express Journal Courier which turns out to be funded by partisan dark money, whether from the left or from the right. You don't really know where is this information coming from, what agenda is it serving, who is paying for it. And there are now the researchers who track these so-called pink slime sites. There are more than 1,500 of them in all 50 states. So it happens when reliable sources of news go away. It's not as though that vacuum doesn't get filled by something. And often it gets filmed filled by less reliable news sources, by mis- and disinformation, or by national news sources, which are typically more negative, more divisive, um, less likely to contribute to the, again, to the kind of cohesion of local communities. Yeah, I'm so fascinated that in you bringing up the pink slime phenomenon and that, that this is a real thing that's happening. And I think it gets at another thing, that even though trust in when people are asked about their trust in media in the mass media americans rate it very low i think it's just recently gallup reported 34 percent of americans trust the mass media to report the news fair fully accurately and fairly but it seems like these pink slime sites that you are referencing, they sort of capitalize on the trust that Americans still hold in their local news. So I'm wondering what you think about that, if that's the case, and if, if there is a bright side to this conversation that, you know, even though national media might have low marks in terms of trustworthiness, if there still is a sense among the American public that they trust local news. Uh, local news consistently, whether it's uh, local radio, local television, which is still a very important source of news for people, um, or local digital sites and newspapers, has consistently been more trusted than other news sources. But the whole conversation about, about trust in media has become, I think, uh, almost more and more 
misleading because when you ask people what kind of news do you consume and do you trust it? Do you trust whatever, you know, cable or network television news shows you watch? Do you trust whatever uh, websites you regularly visit or the newspapers that you subscribe to? People trust those substantially. It's, they don't trust other people's news. And so the, the way the trust questions are phrased, it sometimes misses the fact that what people are really, really worried about is not necessarily what they're reading. They're worried about what you're reading. <laughs> they're worried about what their uncle or their cousin or their friend in some other part of the country might be reading. And so they're aware that our, our media environment has become really atomized, has become, uh, it is, there's all sorts of ways in which people can be led down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. But it is not that necessarily that they have not found sources of information that they themselves consume. That's so fascinating. I'm wondering, given that sort of caveat or that extra layer of complexity, that it's not so much that people don't trust what they're consuming, they don't trust what you're consuming. Um, should that trouble us at all, that, that there is this sentiment? Well, for one thing, we see this all the time, right? When you say, you know, if you look at people's um, approval of Congress and yet they reelect, I love my congressman and incumbents will get reelected at these incredible rates, but they still don't, they don't like your congressman. So this, this is not, the media is not the only environment in which we see this phenomenon. I do think that there is real opportunity for, um, to build from the bottom up. And that if, if we are able to find sustainable models for community-owned, community-based news organizations that are not part of these enormous chains, I mean, all too many newspapers have been bought up, and television stations too, but this has especially been true of newspapers, have been bought up by private equity firms that are just draining them for cash and hollowing them out. And so even where, there are heroic efforts by philanthropic projects like Report for America to try to get more boots on the ground, to get more reporters, especially into underserved communities. They are battling against this trend of um, of shrinking newsrooms, and I think that the 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 way that we are going to restore both the cohesion in some of our communities. Um, the people's willingness to to vote and to run for office or to split tickets. These are all things that when newspapers disappear, all the research shows that they're all of these bad downstream effects. Public spending goes up, public corruption goes up. When you don't have a kind of accountability function monitoring public spending, and people know so much less about candidates for local office that they often don't have much choice but to just kind of vote for team red or team blue. Whereas if they actually have good information about what's at stake and what are the positions candidates are taking in individual races, then they may vote for a Republican for this office, a Democrat for this office, and do it in a more uh, informed basis. So I think that the, the rewards, if we figure out solutions to rebuilding these newsrooms um, in our rural as well as our urban communities uh, is tremendously valuable for all sorts of other things that we care about as a country. And that's why so much effort, so much thought, so much research and investment is, is going into figuring out different models, a sort of menu of business models that might work in different communities, because it's not going to be one size fits all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I know we're talking a, a bit about local media and focusing on that. In the national media landscape, there's also been a lot of attention paid to how much polarization there is. And, okay, these outlets, they, they might be catering towards an audience that's very much on the right on, on the right side of the spectrum, politically speaking, or the left side. And is this a matter of, you know, these are businesses and the news business is a business and it's trying to cater to its audience so that it has a large audience and that it's giving the audience what it wants rather than what it thinks it needs. So you referred to having a large audience, which certainly can be valuable if everyone is a subscriber, but often the priority is really having an engaged audience of how often do people come back to your site? How, you know, do they tune in to your um, your cable show every single night. And so what we have seen is unlike the days, you know, a generation ago where a more advertising driven model meant that advertisers were looking to reach as broad an audience as possible. Now it can be more profitable to reach a much smaller, but very engaged audience. So what do we know drive engagement? Unfortunately, and the algorithms are perfectly engineered to uh, play off of this, um, making people scared, making people furious, um, feeding much more on emotion than on appeals to reason tend to be the things that, uh, that drive that kind of feeling of bonding with your uh, information source and the rest of the audience. And whether that's happening on the left or on the right, um, you have the, the, a real incentive to exaggerate uh, the divisions between our political factions. And the problem is that one thing that social scientists know now is that each side has a really distorted view of the other side. It's like we have created cartoon caricatures of, you know, that Democrats carry in their heads of Republicans and Republicans carry in their heads of Democrats. And both sides dramatically overestimate the hostility of their opponents. Mm -hmm. And when we are operating in that kind of environment where we misperceive uh, just how um, divided we are, it makes every election an existential threat and it makes every decision a kind of zero sum game. And so, and unfortunately the, the economic incentives of a lot of our, our information infrastructure encourage uh, giving the biggest platform to the most extreme views or emphasizing those most, you know, those appeal to the most basic emotional themes. Nancy, we have a few minutes left, but I did want to ask you, since Shorenstein is housed within Harvard University and you all are interacting with students, um, we have an audience question that relates to, to college journalism programs and students in general. This is from Susan Berardi from Illinois. She asks, how can you keep college journalism programs thriving when the job prospects are so few and the pay is so low? We need more investigative journalists, not less. And I'll just tack on to this question if you can keep it in your mind. Since you are interacting with, with students, is there something about the way they think about and consume media that the rest of us can learn from? Well, I'm so glad you asked that and, and my answer would connect those two. Yes, Allison, you are entirely right that 
Um, I'm encouraged by the fact, partly because I still think journalism is a fantastic career. It's incredibly fun. It is never boring. Every day is different. It's a it's a mission driven field for many people. Um, it's great for people with short attention spans who constantly like doing new things. Um, but you are right that it is it has been one where uh, if newsrooms are shrinking, then what happens to how many of people who hope to go into journalism are going to have to end up finding other roles broadly in communication space and don't get to actually function as reporters? To which I would say the answer is the one that you suggest that uh, I feel like maybe three years is a generation in terms of media behaviors. And so it is not my generation that should be designing the channels through which media is consumed by younger people. It's going to be your generation that does it. And even within my class, where I probably have a 30-year age range between my youngest students and my oldest ones, their media consumption instincts are completely different. And so I think there's a tremendous opportunity that is likely to be much more visual, much more video driven, much more interactive than kind of traditional words on pages or words on screens. This is, you know, for all technology has disrupted the all of the machinery of journalism. This is also a golden age of storytelling, of extraordinary storytelling tools. And so my hope is that it is going to be the rising generation of journalists that invents and imagines and educates older ones about what is possible and what the demand for information is so that we aren't only looking at who is supplying it and how, but what kind of information do people want and how do they want to receive it? Nancy, and I'm assuming you also experienced the amount of dedication and drive that these young journalists have, these budding journalists have as well, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's tremendous. And in fact, in journalism schools all over the country, in many state houses, most of the reporters covering the state house are students at the local journalism schools. They are really filling critical gaps in public radio, where many public radio stations are anchored in universities. Um, and, and filling in some of the holes that have been left as newsrooms were shrinking. And so I think our journalism schools are playing a more and more and more important role in, in serving the communities in their regions. And I would love to see ways for that to expand as well, because again, the need is only growing. Well, unfortunately, Nancy, we will, we will have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Nancy Gibbs. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.